Well, today we're starting a new series uh, entitled The Living Church. And um, we're looking this morning at God's vision for his church. Now, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, the risen Lord speaks to seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And to all of these seven churches, he says the, essentially the same words. I know. Uh, he says, I, I know your deeds. I know where you live. I know your afflictions. And to some of the churches, like the church in a place called Smyrna, the words of Jesus saying, I know, would have brought great encouragement to them because they were a poor and persecuted church and they thought that they were going through all this stuff in life and no one knew and no one was seeing what they were going through. But to that church, the risen Lord says, I know, I know what you're going through. I know your afflictions and I know your poverty. But there was another church, a church at a place called Sardis. They wouldn't have been so encouraged by the words of Jesus to them when he says, I know that I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but are dead. Ouch. Fancy that, a church having a reputation for being alive, and yet the Lord who sees everything, who knows everything, whose judgment is always perfect, says that this Sardis church wasn't alive as they thought and as everybody else thought, but was actually dead. Now, Sardis was probably considered to be an amazing church, a church that was alive, a church that was going places, a church with a reputation, a church which was the in place to be in that town. And I suppose if that church had been around today, it would have had a terrific website, uh, displaying all of its community ministries and all of its um, outreach, the best church in town. It had a reputation. But Jesus viewed this church at Sardis not as alive, but as dead. Now, reputation is about how others see us. Someone once said, worry about your character and not your reputation. Because your character is who you are, and your reputation is only what people think you are. Food for thought. Or putting it another way, reputation is what people think of us. Character is what God sees in us. And the church at Sardis had a reputation for being alive, but God's assessment was not life, rather it was, it was death. So what does it look like to be a church which is alive? A living church as opposed to a dead church. And that's what Dan and I are going to attempt to answer over the next few months or next couple of months of uh, studies on a Sunday morning. And as ever, the most important book to us is, is this one, the scriptures. And we will be looking at the scriptures together. But um, we are using a number of other uh, uh, resources as well from various writers, from various pastors. And one particularly uh, good uh, resource that we are using is, is a book by a, an Anglican. He passed away a few years back, John Stott, and it's called actually The Living Church. And we've borrowed the title of this book to uh, be the title of our series. You see, God is absolutely passionate about his church. Jesus gave his life for her. 
Paul tells us in Acts chapter 20, verse 2, that Christ purchased the church with his own blood. On another occasion, when Paul was writing to the Ephesian church, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, he encourages husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And the church lies right at the center of God's eternal purposes. And the church is God's new community, working out those purposes in history. A people called from this world for God's glory. You see, the church is not some man-made idea, but it's God's idea from the very beginning. The church is called in Scripture, as most of us know, the Bride of Christ. Now, I've met people over the years who are utterly fascinated with Jesus. They think Jesus is great, but they want nothing at all to do with church. And I think they're well off target. If someone came up to me and said, Steve, we think you're pretty cool. Okay, it's hypothetical, okay? <laughs> we, we think you're pretty cool. We, we think you're an absolutely amazing guy, but we don't like your wife. Hypothetical? It's probably the other way around. <laughs> Julie, how on earth did you end up with him? That's probably the way that it is. But if someone said, Steve, we think you're a pretty cool guy, you know, we think you're great, but uh, we really don't like your wife at all, whom I love with all of my heart and one for whom I'd give my own life, I wouldn't be particularly thrilled by that sentiment. And you see, the church is the bride of Christ, the glorious bride, the precious bride, the one from who, for whom Jesus gave his life. On the one hand, the church, and please, when we're talking about church, don't think of, um, of buildings, don't think of hierarchy, think of people. The church has been called out of this world to belong to God. And the church, on the other hand, has been sent back into the world to witness and serve him. And the mission of the church is modelled in Christ when Jesus said in John chapter 20, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Okay, which, which way did the Father send Jesus into this world then? What was that all about? He sent him in as a, a baby, as a human being. Emmanuel, God with us. Paul writes in, in, in Philippians, rather, chapter 2, verses six, 7 and 8, that Christ made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus entered into our world. He took our nature, he lived our life, he died our death, he identified himself, self fully with our humanity and at the same time never ceased to be God and this God who entered into our world calls Christians calls us calls you calls me to enter into other people's lives to sit where they sit to weep with those that weep and to share God's love in every way that we possibly can in their joys and also in their sorrows. So what does an alive or living church look like? And I think that we have a number of examples 
of the early church at its best in the New Testament. For example, and this passage is often quoted, and I've probably quoted it many times myself, is the passage in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. This is what we want to just focus our attention upon this morning. So let's look at these words. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now this passage provides us with a terrific example of the Spirit-filled church in Jerusalem shortly after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given. And it's important for us to recognise that this passage is only a snapshot of one early church, one early church at one period of time in the New Testament times. And the Jerusalem church didn't continue to be quite as wonderful as it was at this moment in time when Luke was writing these words. Also, when we read the New Testament, we can see a very realistic picture of what some of New Testament churches were like. Now, a couple of years ago, Dan and I did a, a series. I nearly said it was a great series. I, th I think it was a great series. That's not because of we were involved, because it was just a, a really important series for us to study together. On 1 Corinthians. Do you remember what we called that series? Okay. I'm feeling rather vulnerable at this moment in time. It wasn't that good, no. The church that had... Yay! The church that had a love affair with problems. Gold star. <laughs> You've got some great daughters, really, Tina. You have. It's uh, wonderful. Um, and that church that we studied for that time was a church that really did have a love affair with problems. Um, many areas of church life, there are all sorts of things going on. There was quarreling and division and there were marriage and relationship problems, and there were problems of sexual immorality within the church, with actually one member of the church sleeping with his stepmother, and people in the church not only turning a blind eye, but some of them were actually approving of it. Amazing. And then you had Christians taking other Christians to court, and Paul was rather cross with them that they should actually air their dirty laundry before others in the way that they were doing it. And I think I said back then, I wonder what, God, what Paul would make of people today who do much the same through Facebook or social media. I wonder what Paul would have to say to us. Yeah. And Paul also had concerns over the way that they shared uh, the Lord's Supper together because the rich people were ignoring the poor. And they had problems over what they believed, over their doctrine. Some of them are appear to believe that there was no resurrection from the dead. Once you're dead, you're dead. Doesn't that sound very 21st century? Corinth was a charismatic church. They had gifts of the Spirit in abundance. 
And yet, Paul has some very, very strong words to this church of the way that they exercise those gifts without love within the congregation. So the church at Corinth was, you could say, charismatic, but it was also chaotic. And we see in that book both the sordid and the sublime. So when we look at this passage uh, today in Acts chapter 2, I think it's very, very important for us to be realistic that there are other not-so-brilliant examples of what the New Testament church was like in other parts of the New Testament. But having said that, this snapshot that we have on the screen before you this morning from Acts chapter 2 provides us with four characteristics of what an alive or living church uh, looks like. And let's just go through these together. So what does the living church look like? The first thing that we would say of a living church is a learning church. In verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, on the day of Pentecost, for those of you that know your way around the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit came, there were 3,000 new converts on that day. My word, 3,000 new converts before Alpha. What's going on here? That's not bad church growth. But what do you do with 3,000 new converts? Having 3,000 baby Christians all in their spiritual nappies, needing, spir needing spiritual feeding. Just imagine if between today and next Sunday, 3,000 people became converts to Jesus in Tamworth. My word, what would we do with them? God had provided for the needs of these new Christians through the apostles that Jesus had taken three years to, first of all, appoint and then train. Jesus was no longer around. He'd gone back to the Father God, but he had taught and trained the apostles to pass on to uh, others what he had passed on to them. And really what they were doing is fulfilling what we call the Great Commission found in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus, among his last words to his disciples, were, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And that's exactly what they were doing here. And the people came and they were learning at the feet of the apostles. 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost they had a remarkable um, conversion experience, the experience of the Holy Spirit. But it's very important for us to note here that just because they had this wonderful experience, it didn't mean that they should stop thinking or that they should uh, neglect their intellect. No, not at all. They had an appetite, an appetite for learning, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And I believe that an alive church or living church is a church which balances both word and spirit. I remember when I started in Bible college uh, a long, long time ago now. In the first term, we had a lecturer called, by the name of Julian Ward. And I remember Julian saying, um, those with the word only dry up. Those with the spirit only blow up. But those with the word and the spirit grow up. And I thought it was very catchy, and I think there's a measure of truth in that. And there are some churches which are renowned as word churches. 
And their church members are often more like students in a lecture room than they are worshippers. And other churches are quite the opposite. They're perhaps what you would call spirit churches, where they're always speaking of some new experience or prophecy or word of knowledge. And some members, some church members can sometimes be a little bit thrill-seeking, focused on experience without any depth or understanding or knowledge of the, the Scriptures. But I believe that the, the living church is one which is both word-orientated and spirit-orientated. After all, Jesus gave one of his favorite descriptions, actually, of the Holy Spirit was the Spirit of Truth. See, not one against the other. But it's not an either or, it's a both and. And these early Christians didn't say, well, we have the Holy Spirit. He is the only teacher that I need. I tell you what, I've heard people actually say that to me over the years. Oh, it's only the Holy Spirit. He's the only teacher that we need. Not at all. These early Christians came and learned all that they could. They sat at the apostles' feet. They listened intently to these guys who had, up to recently, a couple of weeks recently, had been with Jesus. How good must that have been? Sitting at the feet of these guys. How amazing must that have been? You know, before them, Peter, John, James, sometime later, Paul, they had these people sitting before them. And you've got Dan <laughs> and me. <laughs> but that's not all that you've got. You also have Peter and James and John and Paul through the words that they have given to us through the New Testament. And just as these early Christians devoted them to the apostles' teaching, I would like to ask you this morning, do you also devote yourself to the apostles' teaching? Daily, much in the way that they did. I know this may be a little bit awkward, but I'm going to ask you some awkward questions you know, it's brilliant to see you all this morning, and it's really good. I know lots of coughs and colds have been around here, and it's great to see you. But can I ask you, how important is it to you to attend church regularly on a Sunday? And by regular, I don't mean, uh, you know, I attend church regularly every Christmas and Easter. I don't mean it quite in that sense, you know, see you next on April the 1st. I don't mean it in that way. But I mean weekly. Are you putting yourself in a place where you can hear the scriptures being taught weekly? And if not, and because, you know, there are things that will interrupt illness, for example, or, you know, work schedules, uh, work commitments, are you picking up podcasts every week so that you can journey in the same direction as your fellow Christians, those that you are on this spiritual journey with? I told you these were awkward questions. Another awkward question. Have you linked in with a life group? I think it's such a joy and a privilege to be able to discuss the scriptures with other Christians. You know, personal Bibles, they've not been around that long when you think of it, the printing press and so forth. But before that time, it was always a community of Christians that would get together to discuss the scriptures. 
And I just love my Thursday life group. I really do. We just learn so much from each other in that group, from one another's perspectives and experiences, and it gives us just a, another take on the scripture of how to apply it in new and practical ways to our lives. I wouldn't get that if I was not a part of a, a life group with other Christians, being able to pray for and encourage and also learn from the scriptures together. Last awkward question. What about sitting at the apostles' feet daily in your own homes? Do you study the scriptures on your own, perhaps with your family? A great way of doing this, and you may have other ways, and there are lots and lots of good ways, but a great way of doing this, and a number of people have uh, found this helpful in the last year, is to um, um, download the Bible in One Year app. It's a free app. And uh, you go through the Bible in a year with Nicky Gumbel of Alpha and also uh, the actor David Suchet. And I really do recommend that. It's absolutely brilliant. And if you want to know a bit more about that, it's in the newsletter. And it's not too late uh, to start for this year. You can start actually at any time and go through the Bible with them. So a living church, I would say, is a learning church. So please don't feel that you get to a place where you almost sort of pat yourself on the back and saying, I don't think there's much more I need to know. I've been a Christian 20 years now. I, need, I know all that I need to know. That is a lot of nonsense. You know, I've been a Christian 40 years, and I probably have more questions now than I had in 1977. Altogether different questions, of course. What did Jesus say the first commandment was? He said, the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And my personal goal, one of my personal goals this year, is to try to create more time for study where I can learn more. So why not make that you a goal as well? Okay, secondly, a living church is a caring church. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, the word fellowship there is the, the Greek word koinonia, from which, which actually means the things that they had in common together. Now, when I was a younger Christian, and I, I don't hear this so much these days, people used to say, or Christians used to say, Let's meet up together and have a little bit of fellowship. I don't know if you've heard that, and certainly perhaps you all the Christians, you don't hear it around so much these days. And what they meant by let's meet up and have some fellowship is let's meet up for tea and biscuits and a chat. Or better still, a Sunday afternoon picnic or barbecue. Meet up for a social. And that's the way that many Christians have understood fellowship. But the biblical example of fellowship is far, far, far beyond anything like that. Because these Christians had everything in common, and they even sold their property and possessions to meet <coughs> the needs of others. Ouch. That's a bit scary, isn't it? Is that what the Lord requires of all Christians? That we should sell our properties, our homes, in give our money to the poor? Is that what the Lord requires of us? Well, I don't believe it is. It has been the case, certainly for people down through the 
uh, ages, Christians at various times. Remember, on one occasion, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, uh, sell everything and give to the poor. And then we are told that this young man walked away sad because he had great wealth. But we can read other stories in history. People like St. Francis of Sisi and uh, Mother Teresa and her sisters who made voluntary vows of poverty. But not all Christians are called to this. I like uh, a quote from John Stott. He said that the, the prohibition of private property is Marxist, not a Christian doctrine. And he's right. In verse 46, we read that these early Christians in Jerusalem, they broke bread in their homes. Just catch that. Where did they break bread? In their homes. Some of them, at least, had homes to break bread in, which, in a sense, shows that, you know, not all were required to do this. In Acts chapter 5, we read the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, who sold a property, but kept back some of the proceeds of that property of their sale while pretending to give it all. It's a sin for which God judged them. But their sin wasn't greed. Actually, I think they were very generous people, Ananias and Sapphira. Their sin was deceit. The property belonged to them. They could do as they wished with the property. And after they'd sold it and they had the money, they could do what they wished with the money. But their problem was what they tried to deceive the apostles by pretending that they were giving everything and dishonestly keeping something back for themselves. Now, from what I've just said, you might um, uh, feel a little relieved that God does not expect you to go and sell your home and give the money to the poor. It's okay. Breathe. But let us not leave this subject too quickly. These verses tell us that those early Christians loved one another very, very deeply. In fact, it was said of the early Christians, see how they love one another. The depth of their fellowship not only helped the poorest of the poor amongst them, but also when those who were unbelievers were looking in at these Christians, they were amazed at how attractive Christianity truly was. And generosity of spirit has always been a hallmark of the living church, where there is an overwhelming desire to bless others and to supply their needs through food, through a warm bed, through clothing, through friendship or other ways. And the desire that Christians very often have is to follow what the Lord teaches and that is to do to others as you would have them do to you. Recognizing that this is a measure, that rather the measure that we use will be measured to us. And one of the biggest changes I believe that the Holy Spirit makes in a person's life is to create a tender and a sensitive heart towards other people and a desire to care for them, whether they be Christians or whether they be not Christians. David Watson, a, a great, great leader in the Anglican church of another generation, he said, until the kingdom of God can be demonstrated in our relationships of love with one another, we have nothing to say with any credibility to an unbelieving and broken world. I'll leave that on screen just for a moment. Let those words just sink in. Very, very powerful words there. 
In other words, what he is saying is that there is a credibility gap, or rather, if there is a credibility gap between what we say and what we do, then the church will remain unattractive and unappealing. Society today, I believe, is becoming more and more fragmented because of mobility of jobs, because of relationship breaks, breakups. Um, there is often no sense of community or belonging. Society is becoming, I think, more impersonal, and loneliness abounds. Many people, I think, have had enough of the superficiality of daily acquaintances and that they're looking for something deeper. They're looking for a reality of relationships. And that, I believe, is what they will find in a caring church. So a living church is also a caring church. Thirdly, a living church is a worshipping church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. The words there, breaking of bread, probably refers to the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, as we might call it, or communion, uh, which was probably... None, done not in the way that we have a communion on a Sunday morning where we come forward and we take it, but probably done in a home where they had a meal as well, uh, much like the Passover meal that Jesus shared when he instituted the Lord's Supper, and also like the Corinthians were having this agape feast, this love feast, and the communion. I think that's a really good way to share the Lord's Supper. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. Now, notice the way that they met. They met in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes. And the thing that we can notice here about their worship was that there was the, for, the formal in the temple courts and there was the informal in their homes. There was the larger gathering and there was the smaller, more informal meeting. Or as we might say, there was the celebration and there was also the cell. Um, William Beckham in his excellent book entitled The Second Reformation writes this. The creator once created a church with two wings. One wing was the large group celebration. The other wing was for small group community. Using both wings, the church could soar into the heavens, entering into his presence and to do his will all over the earth. After a few hundred years of flying across the earth, the two-winged church began to question the need for the small group wing. The jealous, wicked serpent who had no wings loudly applauded this idea. Over the years, the small group wing became weaker and weaker from lack of exercise until it virtually had no strength at all. The two-winged church that had soared high into the heavens was now, for all practical purposes, one-winged. The creator of the church was very sad. He knew the two-winged design had allowed the church to soar into his presence to do his bidding. Now with only one wing, just lifting off the ground required tremendous energy and effort and if the church did manage to become airborne, it was prone to fly in circles, lose its sense of direction, and not fly very far from its takeoff point. Spending more and more time in the safety and comfort of its habitat, it grew contented with an earthbound existence. 
From time to time, the church dreamed of flying into the presence of the Creator and doing His work all over the earth. But now, the strong, large group wing controlled every movement of the church and doomed it to an earthbound existence. In compassion, the Creator finally stretched forth His hand and reshaped His church so it could, be, so it could use both wings. Once again, the Creator possessed the church that could fly into his presence and so high over all the earth, fulfilling his purposes and plans. The church that God intended is a church with two wings. And I think that is so, so right. The church needs the large, large group celebration wing. The coming together as we are coming together this morning in celebration with a larger number of people celebrating the goodness and the love of God and the faithfulness of God with people of all ages and all races, children and teens and young adults and families and older people from diverse socioeconomic and, econo and, and educational backgrounds to celebrate both our unity together but also to celebrate our diversity. But we also need the small group wing of the church too. It's not an either-or, but a both-and. And I believe that the small group, and I would encourage you, if you're not a part of a small group, where you have the opportunity to meet with other Christians, find out more about it. Become part of that. It's wonderful to come on a Sunday morning and to share what we share here and to have perhaps more formal times of teaching. But we can't last on that alone. We need the intimacy of a small group. It's essential, I believe, for our spiritual growth to really get to know people beyond the, the superficial, good morning, how are you, good to see, see you next week kind of conversation that we sometimes have at the church door. It's the opportunity to get to know others and for them to get to know us, to offer and receive prayer for personal needs, to ask questions, to learn from others that we can help others understand the scriptures, that we can use spiritual gifts, we can exercise kindness and compassion and encouragement as much as we are the recipients of those things. Very, very important. So what else do we know about this church and its worship? Well, we know that they were joyful. It says there that they broke bread in their homes and ate with glad and sincere hearts. Now, the NIV translators didn't really do such a brilliant job, I don't think, with the word glad. Because it's, it, it, it's, it, it's an okay word. But it, actually the word in the Greek of the New Testament is agalaiasis. Which means, not just glad, it means a bit more than that. It means extreme joy. It means exuberant joy. God who sent his son into the world and sent his spirit into our hearts, how could we not be joyful? The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I love uh, John Stott's words from the, the book that I uh, mentioned a little bit earlier. I'll put them on screen for you. This is what John Stott says, very experienced minister. When I attend some church services, 
I almost think I have come to a funeral by mistake. Everybody is dressed in black. <coughs> Nobody talks or smiles. The hymns are played at the pace of a snail or tortoise. If I could overcome my Anglo-Saxon reserve, I would want to shout, cheer up! <laughs> Christianity is a joyful religion and every service should be a celebration. Amen. Uh, John Slott isn't the only one who has uh, given similar con uh, um, sentiments. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson entered into his diary, I have been to church today and I am not depressed. <laughs> As if he was quoting something which some extraordinary phenomenon here. And the American humorist uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes in a similar vein wrote, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not acted, looked and acted so much like undertakers. You see, I think that what we need here, what we're talking about is the living church. We need um, to avoid the two extremes. Church services which are like funerals and church services which are flippant. And our meetings, I believe, should be characterized by both joy and by reverence. And we see this in the New Testament church in Jerusalem. For when they met, they did so, first of all, with glad and sincere hearts. There was great joy there. But also, we read in verse 43, everyone was filled with awe. And I think that that kind of balance is very, very important. A living church is also an evangelizing church. Verse 47, they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You see, the living church is also an outward-looking church. Learning is essential. Caring for others is crucial. Worship is fundamental. But we must also look outside of our doors. And the living church here in Jerusalem was a growing church. And the Lord added to its numbers daily those who were being saved. Now, time is nearly gone, so let me just give you a, quick, a few quick-fire comments uh, on that verse. First of all, let me just come back. It was the Lord who added to their number. It was the Lord who added to their number. There's every likelihood that the Lord used the apostles' teaching or possibly used the everyday witness of the church members, but it was the Lord who added to their number. It's always the Lord. You see, only the Lord Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, can open the, the, the eyes of those who are spiritually blind. It is only the Lord who can create life in a spiritually dead heart. And that's a very, very important thing to see. It was the Lord. Secondly, the Lord did two things together. He added to their number those who were being saved. He didn't just add them to the church without saving them, and he didn't save them without adding them to the church. And salvation and church membership went together in the living church, and they still, still do today. And thirdly, the Lord did both these things daily. Now, a living church doesn't regard evangelism as something that they do occasionally, some kind of occasional activity. I, I do remember the early 90s when the Anglican church called for a decade of evangelism. Sadly, the church 
reduced in size in that 10 years by 22%. That's another story. But evangelism for the early church, for the living church, was the normal, the everyday, the natural activity for them. Now, this morning, you know, we're going to be on this for a couple of months yet, all right? This morning is just a tester, a tester of where we are heading, and uh, we're going to be picking up a number of these themes in coming weeks. The alive church, as opposed to the dead or the, the dying church, is a learning church, it's a caring church, it's a worshipping church, and it's also an evangelizing church. And my prayer is, by God's grace, let us, let Tamworth Elim Church, seek to be a living church, not just by reputation, but be truly a church where we see all of those things, that the church is truly alive and is fulfilling the desires of the Lord and the purposes of the Lord in our world. Amen. Let's pray together.